Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Winter weather can make life challenging for all kinds of animal species, but the winter months can also be a wonderful time to observe the wild creatures that are hardy enough to stick around. This hour, our bird experts are back to tell us why winter can be a wonderful time for bird watching. Tyler Harms is executive director of Young Birders of Iowa and a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research staff. Hello, Tyler. Good morning, Charity. Welcome back. Todd Burris is also here, co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Hello, Todd. Good morning, Charity. Thanks for having us on. Well, it's wonderful to have both of you back. And of course, in the winter months, there are some people who are hardy enough to go out and explore nature and go looking for birds. But a lot of us might also be really delighted to observe wildlife from the safety and warmth of our own home. So, Todd, why don't we start there and talk about some of the bird species that we might very well be able to see from our windows? Yeah, that's... Uh... That's the nice thing about uh, birds is they're they're pretty easy to observe um, from the comfort of your home, as you said. And so, um, if you've got some shrubs or trees, or if you put bird feeders out, your uh, chances of of having birds show up in your yard are are very high. So that's that's a fun thing, and um, it helps a, a lot of people get through kind of the the doldrums of this time of the year when when it's dark and cold and, and uh, we're all kind of longing for, for spring. Yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, you know, so some of those birds that people will, will inevitably see in their backyards this time of the year and, and throughout the year actually are the, are the birds that spend the year here that don't migrate uh, farther south. And so there are things like chickadees and woodpeckers and cardinals, tufted titmice, nuthatches, Things like that. They're, these are uh, birds that uh, primarily eat seeds uh, or nuts, and so that's why they're able to to be around this time of the year because uh, their their uh, diets don't depend on insects this time of the year. So those are birds that that if if you put a feeder out, there's a really good chance that you're going to attract some of them. Nice. And so let's talk a little bit about chickadees, because mm-hmm. um, I tend to go on very early morning walks mm-hmm. every morning as the sun's coming up. And one of the joys of winter is getting to hear chickadees about that time. And usually they sound a lot better when it's just starting to get a little bit warmer in, say, February mm-hmm. <laughs> or March. Yeah. But um, let's listen to the call of the chickadee, because okay. I think that's one of the just the joys of winter. Yeah. So, Todd, when we're listening to a chickadee, what are mm-hmm. we hearing? Um, well, they're, they're named chickadees because uh, phonetically what you often will hear is them saying chickadee-dee-dee. Dee, dee. Um, so you're hearing that. Um, you may be hearing just um, some, at this time of the year anyway, maybe some um, just re, re, um, Communication between uh, a family or a pair of, of chickadees, location call, things like that. Um, they don't really start singing in earnest until we get 
more towards towards spring. And so this is just kind of a bright, happy, uh, I don't know, Tyler, do, do birds just sing sometimes because they can and because they like to? Oh, sure. I think so. <laughs> and uh, their chickadees are, are one of, uh, I think a lot of people's uh, would be at the top of their list of favorite birds just because of that sweet sound. And uh, it's cheerful. Uh, you step out in the morning and uh, that's what awaits you is hearing hearing those and and uh, puts a smile on your face and, and p- puts a... Uh, uh, skip to your step, I guess, a little Absolutely. bit. And it makes you think that, yes, maybe spring will <laughs> actually come eventually. Eventually it will, yeah. <laughs> so exactly. with uh, with those backyard bird species, are there different kinds of seeds that you would put out that would attract different kinds of birds? Or is it just, you know, these birds are, are once it gets snowy, they're going to be looking for seed and they're going to come visit your feeder? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and like I said, most of these birds are are seed eaters, um, you know, throughout the year, and um, so things like black oil sunflower seed um, is without a doubt the most common seed that attracts the most birds that will come to your back backyard. Um, it's high in protein, high in fat. Uh, those birds uh, are looking for um, those those kinds of energy sources. Uh, especially with the days uh, getting so short, they've got less time during the day to find food. Um, there's been studies that uh, have been conducted through the years that show that even the birds that show up frequently uh, at your feeders are still gleaning the majority of their uh, diet uh, from what they can pick up naturally. Uh, so, you know, things like cone flowers or sunflowers, goldenrods, things like that that produce seeds. Uh, this time of the year, birds are still able to find those sources or acorns, um, things like that, um, that they're, that they're able to get. But yeah, so, um, but, but feeders are a really good supplementary source for birds. It gives them that opportunity to get in and, and, um, get some, uh, quick, uh, protein because they're trying to, you know, regulate their, their temperature and, and stuff this time of the year to stay warm. Um, so sunflower, uh, safflower is a good source of, of uh, seed for birds. It's a, people recognize that it's a hard, white-shelled seed, uh, very high in oil content. Cardinals and house finches, um, chickadees um, really like uh, safflower. So, and then um, niger or thistle is another one that people will put out a lot of times. Uh, that goldfinches in particular uh, are attracted to. So, and then peanuts. Uh, is another thing that people can put out um, that all the birds uh, this time of the year will will typically grab peanuts if they can, especially the nuthatches and the and the chickadees and the woodpeckers. Yeah, a few other Blue creatures jays. won't yeah. turn those yeah. down either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the furry uh, variety, right? Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's an an excellent reminder, though, that you know a lot of us develop this very intense relationship with our backyard birds <laughs> and the backyard bird feeder. But this is a wonderful way to interact with them, to see them. It can be a supplement for them, but they really are not usually depending on your bird feeders for survival, right? Right. And, uh, you know, when you do get into really extreme weather conditions and stuff at times where things are, um, you get into January or February where maybe um, a lot of those seed sources or natural sources have been gleaned off the landscape and you've got a heavy, uh, a lot of snow um, pack and uh, it's harder for them to find 
uh, foods naturally. Um, you know, the, the things that they've maybe cached throughout the winter are gone. Uh, you really can uh, help them out. You know, some of those birds are maybe younger, they're weaker, whatever. And so having an access to food and to water uh, is maybe what will help get them through, you know, some brutal, more brutal times. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, they're they're very good at at, at providing and taking care of themselves. I, I would hope so. That's, <laughs> that's good news. So those are the birds that kind of stick around that, that we get to see, you know, during the winter months in the backyard. But there are birds that make a point of coming to Iowa for the winter months, which <laughs> is kind of hard to believe. But Tyler, what are some of the birds that, that visit us in the winter? Yeah, that's it's really interesting, Charity. Oftentimes when I tell people that, they kind of look at me funny, like, <laughs> who who would want to come to Iowa to spend the winter months? But believe it or not, there are places uh, north of us, primarily, where winter is, is much worse or perhaps much better, depending on <laughs> your point, of, on view. Your point right. of view. But there are a number of species that, that come to Iowa uh, for winter. And the, the most common is likely the dark-eyed junco. Uh, that's a, a small little songbird that's a, kind of a slate gray in color with a with a, a white white stomach and and they are called the the snowbird uh, primarily because people associate them with winter. So we all have birds that we expect to see to in the springtime that kind of help help us remember that spring is is on the horizon. Um, when people are seeing juncos in the fall. That tends to be a, a grim reminder that winter is is on the horizon, and so that's a really a really common bird that that spends the winter here, but will spend the summer months further north. Um, other species that breed further north of us would be uh, what I typically call open country birds. So things like a Lapland longspur and a snow bunting are are two really good examples. So. If our listeners are, are driving any of the rural roads in <laughs> Iowa and they flush a big flock of songbirds off of the gravel shoulder, chances are it's going to be a flock of birds that consist of, of either or both of those two species and, and horned larks. Those are three species of open country birds that, um, that really like that treeless, um, desolate kind of open <laughs> landscape. Um, that, that's where they spend the, their summer months in, in the north, uh, kind of in the high Arctic on the tundra where there are very few trees, and that's where they choose to spend the winter months as well. And so those are a couple of other really common species that come and visit us in the wintertime. What are some of the other birds that, that we might hear um, if we're out for a walk in the winter, some distinctive calls that you enjoy? Oh man, I, you know there's a lot of great sounds out there in the wintertime coming from birds, and I I share your uh, your love of the the chickadee sounds uh, as I'm out walking through the woods. But you know a, a couple others that that are really common this time of year, and and Todd you can you can chime in here too. But uh, owls are really vocal this time of year, and so um, not necessarily a species that we might hear vocalizing during the day, but certainly at night, uh, some folks might be um, might be um, a bit disappointed with the owls this time of year because they might be keeping them up at night with their calls. <laughs> but uh, owls are a couple of the, the earliest nesting species that we have in Iowa. They'll start uh, laying eggs in as early as late January, and so so they're they're singing and and protecting territories and and kind of attracting mates 
this time of year, much like what we would expect to see in our songbirds in the spring. Right. Well, and we're going to take a short break. We'll talk about some of those early nesting species uh, when we get back in just a moment. We can can listen a little bit to the, the sounds of the screech owl as, as we go out here, something you might be hearing during your evenings. I'm talking with Tyler Harms, executive director of Young Birders of Iowa. He's also a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff. Todd Burris is co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. We will take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. And you can join the conversation with your questions and observations. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about birds and why winter can be a wonderful time to do some bird watching. With me today, Tyler Harms, Executive Director of Young Birders of Iowa and a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff. Todd Burris is also here, co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. And just before the break, Tyler, you talked about listening to owls at night, which can be, again, a really wonderful thing this time of year and and through especially I find during the fall season when you go out near sunset or a little bit after you get to hear them we listen to a screech owl but I'm not great with bird calls but I do find that at least with owls I can always tell the difference between the owl species so um, that those seem to be really easy calls to memorize so that I actually can identify species are they a good starting point for people who want to learn bird song? Absolutely. And you heard Tony during the break um, use the the phrase that we commonly use for the barred owl, the who cooks for you, who cooks for you all. I think they're they're just really distinctive, easy sounds to uh, to identify. Absolutely. And especially uh, at 2 a.m. Right. Or 3 a.m. <laughs> if you're awake, if you're <laughs> awake. Well, and there's that that uh, wonderful book, Owl Moon, that's so many children have enjoyed over decades about going out at night and looking for, um, I think there were great horned owls in that story, which can be a wonderful thing to do if you don't like staying in your warm bed. Um, so <laughs> you mentioned uh, early nesting birds. Todd, let's talk about some of the the other early nesting birds, because um, it it fascinates me that they mate so early and nest so early. Of course, that's why we get to watch the decor eagles before anything else is going on in the spring. But tell me what birds are nesting in the middle of winter. Well, you, you touched on it right there, uh, Charity. Eagles are, are one of those uh, birds that um, start um, nesting really early. In fact, I, we were watching the Decora webcam sometime uh, in October, and uh, they actually had 
um, they were showing that one of the birds was at the nest and was actually messing around with last year's nest, kind of checking out. And they will start, uh, and maybe are now already, starting to work on rebuilding that nest so that, you know, they build a nest, they have really strong site fidelity, um, and so they will typically reuse that nest over and long as long as they can, as long as the, it's structurally sound. And they will start bringing in and adding to it. And so, uh, you know, those nests can weigh up to a ton or more. Um, and so they're getting that thing ready uh, this time of the year so that um, uh, then they will start breeding and um, lay their eggs in what month? Early March? Yeah, I would say Early, maybe even February. Late February, yeah. And then... Um, they will uh, those those birds will fledge then not not until midsummer or so but um, yeah so while we're um, you know hunkered down inside and 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 things and lots of people have watched those those eagles before they'll be sitting up on their nest and they'll be covered with snow or they'll be sitting through the rain and um, sitting on their eggs and owls do the same thing the we mentioned the the barred owl the great horned owls are the same they will start nesting. Uh, in, you know, probably in January and have those uh, chicks out and they will be uh, fledging in time for the um, migratory birds that are starting to come back and some of those birds on which they feast. And right. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and these birds are just, I, I always think of them, Todd, as, I mean, most birds are very dedicated parents, but man, owls and eagles them. are the pinnacle of, yeah. of dedicated parents. You know, they're they're starting to lay eggs in winter and they're still feeding their young in in October. Yeah. You know, you'll hear young young owls uh, begging mom and dad to bring them a snack. Um, and so so they're spending a good part of the year uh, with as parents. Yeah. So those the raptors just they take a little longer to go through that process too. I mean, when you think about songbirds, you know, a song many songbirds at least yeah. can lay several different clutches of eggs and raise those young multiple times during the summer months. But for raptors, they are going to invest in the, you know, two or three eggs that they have and and give all of that investment all summer long, right? right. Yeah, That's takes, absolutely right. It takes a long time for those eggs to incubate in comparison to the smaller songbirds. And then once those um, birds hatch, then it takes them a lot longer to grow to maturity so that, or semi-maturity so that then they can, they can fledge. So, yeah, there's a lot going on for those bigger birds uh, compared to the intensity uh, that, that our songbirds uh, uh, tend to do with it when it comes to nesting. So, um, what other birds are there that, are, that you the nest this time it start nesting, Tyler. Cor corvids tend to be yeah. pretty early nesters. So things like blue jays and American crows that yeah. we see belong to the uh, family of corvidae, and and yeah. they tend to nest pretty early for for the songbirds. Yeah. Um, they'll start nesting in in you know February or March, usually this time of year. And I can also tell you that I have witnessed young crows also begging well into October. <laughs> so their, their parents are investing a whole lot of time and energy in them as well. Um, while we were speaking of, of raptors, though, of owls, let's talk about one of the, the real treats that we occasionally mm. get in the winter months in Iowa. And those are eruptive species. Todd, what, what does that mean? 
Uh, eruptive uh, means that these are birds that, for whatever reason, um, they spend uh, their summers, uh, you know, typically in the maybe in the high Arctic or the boreal forest or that kind of thing. And it's usually um, centered around uh, food uh, resources that um, if there is so something like um, uh, maybe pine siskins or uh, common red poles or purple finches that are seed eaters, if there's a really good cone crop in the areas where they're summering, uh, then they tend to not, uh, they, they spend most of the winter there if they can. Uh, on years when there's not as uh, good of a cone crop uh, uh, production, those birds have to start uh, dispersing to try to find uh, resource, food resources. And so that's when you'll start seeing more of them come, come down and come through. Um, owl, snowy owls, I think, is the opposite. Um, it's not that it's a food resource necessarily as much as they've kind of de- determined that um, if snowy owls have a really good year of production in the Arctic, those offspring have to disperse uh, to go find food. Um, but that's because their, their numbers are, are up. And so they're coming down. And I just saw a report yesterday, I think, that some are starting to show up now in Wisconsin, some snowy owls. Yeah. And there's a really neat project called Project Snowstorm mm-hmm. uh, that, that is tracking movements of some of these snowy owls. And it's just fascinating to see how far some of these birds will move. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they'll fly as far south as the southern U.S. Um, or even farther and it's just really neat, a, a neat phenomenon that we see in the wintertime. Yeah, and, and of course, the uh, people who are active bird watchers, the chatter goes crazy <laughs> when the snowy owls come to Iowa, <laughs> doesn't it? Everybody wants to see a snowy owl. Yeah. So you're, you're... <laughs> and who can blame them? <laughs> right. I mean, right. what a gorgeous bird. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. All right. Uh, we are getting some questions, so I'm going to refer some questions to you guys. And if you have anything you'd like to add to the conversation, your questions or your observations, you can give us a call at 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Lori has a question that I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, she says, I'm concerned about bird flu and how it impacts birds that gather at my feeders. Could you give advice on that concern? That was something people were worried about at the beginning of the summer, but it's still impacting us. Tyler, what, should we be worried about that? Yeah, that's a that's a, uh, a good concern, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that Lori is thinking about that. Um, when we think about bird flu and, and the species that it typically impacts, um, waterfowl are at the top of that list. Um, and, and it really doesn't impact our, our songbirds or our, our typical backyard birds as much. Um, and so, so if, you know, we, we typically don't see ducks and geese visiting our bird feeders. And so it tends not to be a a major concern or not, not something we need to worry about too much with our bird feeders. The only time where I might, you know, think about perhaps taking bird feeders down or at least cleaning them regularly would be if you do have a feeder set up that, that is near, a wetland where waterfowl might be congregating in the wintertime that, you know, that might be a, a, a situation where you would consider, um, you know, doing something differently with your bird feeders. But for the most part, our typical backyard birds should be, should be insulated from, from that impact. That's good news. And here's one for you, Todd, from Linda in Dubuque. Who eats my dry mealworms and suet pellets? Popular this year, but I'm not sure who's enjoying them. Um. 
the the suet pellets, I think, about everything that you have uh, coming to your feeders are going to eat those because those are such high fat and protein uh, sources that um, those are oftentimes the first things that get consumed. Um, the mealworms, um, the dried mealworms, um, it just kind of depends what you have coming to your feeders and what if there's anything else that you have out. Um, I watched a chickadee yesterday come to a feeder, and the first thing it did was it picked up a, a dried mealworm and it threw it away. And then it picked up another couple seeds, tested them, dropped them before it finally found a, a seed that it wanted and flew off. But um, in that picky. case, those birds picky, have picky. a lot of seeds, but right. yeah, very picky. But but uh, you'll see that a lot of times with uh, nut hatches and, and chickadees are the two that I think of that um, it's like they're weighing the, the food uh, to see which is the heaviest or the best seed that they can get before they take it and go. And it's, it's probably a matter of uh, getting the most out of their I, I think it's I think it's just a product of having a, a owner of a bird feeder store providing a diversity of seed. They, they, I don't know that my chickadees in my backyard are that picky, but they, maybe they, they are. They don't and turn I just down don't uh, mealworms or things like that. Yeah. So no, the uh, but but cardinals and uh, and uh, chickadees, not every everything will eat those mealworms, uh, particularly if um, they don't have as many other. You know, if the seeds are gone or the nuts are gone or whatever, the suet balls are definitely going to be gone because they're going to grab those probably first. Uh, they'll eat the worms. So. <laughs> well, I, I've they're I opportunistic. So. I'm I'm using my experience as a former chicken keeper to think that uh-huh. any kind of mealworms are like candy to chickens. Yeah. So I assumed that they'd be the first to go, but I guess different Live strokes for different folks. Yeah, exactly. The dried mealworms actually. Uh, have a higher protein content and things than than the live mealworms do, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive, I guess. So um, I'm not sure why why they would snub a mealworm, but <laughs> a dry mealworm, but I guess they do. <laughs> Very interesting. All right, let's go to the phones. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Bob is on the line in Polk City. Hi, Bob. Hi. Hi, what would you like to talk um, about? I have a question about feeding and whether or not that causes birds to relocate their nesting area. Uh, We have um, quite a bit of wooded area at the back of our yard. There's a creek there. And um, we had not noticed any blue jays this summer, but um, we started putting out peanuts this winter, this fall. And, of course, they've come in large numbers every day for those. Will that cause some of them to nest here, even though they hadn't before? That's a really good question, which I don't have a real definitive answer uh, on that at all. Maybe you do, Tyler, have, know more about it. Um, I tend to think that blue jays are one of those really kind of strange birds, at least in my experience, of they will be around and then they will be gone and then they'll just show up. You know, they'll be gone for weeks at a time and then show up. Um, but if you have a food source like in-shell peanuts or shelled peanuts available to them, um, they're going to tend to stick around that area um, if it's a reliable source. They get pretty good at kind of figuring out where they can go to, to supplement their, their diet. And so they know that you're putting out the peanuts. They're going to hang around. I don't think that impacts their their nesting probably. I think those birds are probably going to stay um, back deeper in the woods or where they tend to, to nest. But what do you know about that, Tyler? Okay. Yeah, the, a great question, Bob. And I, I would tend to agree with Todd. 
Um, we do know that, you know, birds are there when they're thinking about places to nest. Um, you know, that nest location is really important. And, and what what drives that food is, is pretty high on that list. And so, um, you know, there is a chance, I think, that if you have a consistent food source for them, that, that they may decide to nest a bit closer to your feeders, maybe in your backyard. But as Todd mentioned earlier, the vast majority of the food our birds are getting um, throughout the day or throughout the year, for that matter, is coming from the environment, particularly in the summertime when they're eating mostly insects. And so um, so I think that, that they could maybe shift their nesting preference a bit, but but probably not too much. Bob, thank you so much for the call. And let's talk about Blue Jays just a little bit. First, we're going to listen to uh, some Blue Jay calls. The uh, so when I was growing up, my my grandfather hated blue jays. Um, mm. But I have always found them to be so much fun to watch. I mean, they can be kind of raucous birds, but they interact with each other in really fun ways. And I mean, they're related to crows. I can see some similarities. Uh, and they have all kinds of calls, right? I mean, we just listened to to one that I'm sure we've all heard. But you can hear all kinds of things coming out of blue jays' mouths, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, I think blue jays are kind of like squirrels in the fact that people either really love them or they have almost a disdain for them um, because, like you said, your your dad uh, didn't like them. Um, that's a common thing that I hear from people. I don't like them. They're a bully bird or whatever. And uh, to be honest and to be fair to the blue jays, they're um, they're territorial like every other other bird. They just are happen to be a little bit uh, more raucous, as you said. Great thing about blue jays is um, when they are around, um, they because they're high up in the trees and stuff, they keep an eye on things pretty well. And so if there are Cooper's hogs, sharpshin hogs, things like that. They they alert each other, and in the process, they kind of alert all the other birds to be on uh, on guard. And so, at, let alone the fact that they're just a, a beautiful, gorgeous bird. Absolutely, well, very smell. <laughs> what's amazing to me about blue jays, Todd, is I have so I have one of your peanut wreaths mm-hmm. in my backyard that holds in shell peanuts, yeah. and they will empty that thing in an hour, and and I can. I can go a week without filling it. And as soon as I fill it up, it seems like every blue jay in the neighborhood is there within 15 minutes and it's empty. I mean, so you talk about their ability to, to kind of advertise and alert their friends when, when the, the in-shell peanuts are, are out in my backyard. It, it just fascinates me. Yeah, well, and that's, that long, that's you know. kind and collaborative, too, if they're, right. if they're sharing. <laughs> they right. want to support bullies. the community, right? right? Yeah, that's right. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We're talking about birds this hour. Todd Burris is here, co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Tyler Harms is also here, executive director of Young Birders of Iowa and a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff. You are welcome to join the conversation with your observations and your questions. Give us a call, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. 
proudly supporting quality local journalism, online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about birds and bird watching. With me, Tyler Harms, Executive Director of Young Birders of Iowa and a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff, and Todd Burris, co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. You're welcome to join the conversation. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And we've got Pam on the line in Davenport, also with a common problem. Hi, Pam. Hi. Uh, We have got a a nuthatch that is flying into our windows. We have been feeding the birds. We stopped feeding them there, but today he is still flying into the windows. We put papers up, like yellow paper, typing paper, and he's still there flying around, flying into the windows. I don't know what we can do to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that's a common occurrence, um, more so in the in the spring um, when when birds are starting to uh, get ready for breeding and mating and so forth, um, and and they become more territorial and they see their reflections. Uh, in in windows, and so they think it's another bird or something, and and so they will attack the window that way. See that a lot of times with robins and cardinals. I've seen it with orioles. Other birds do too. This time of the year, it's kind of un, unusual to me. I don't I don't know if it um, what would be causing that other than that it's it's seeing its reflection. Um, if you put the paper on the inside, that probably isn't going to help because it's still going to see its reflection, which is probably what's causing it to repeatedly run into the window. Uh, so putting up a piece of cardboard or something like that to block that window so that it doesn't see the reflection is maybe your best bet uh, to do that. Um, so h- how long will she need to do that? Will they give up after a couple of weeks? Well, they might give up or they might go to a different window. Or... Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of d- depends. I mean, particularly in the spring, um, those birds can be real persistent and continue with that and move around from window to window and stuff. And um, you know, It's so frustrating because it it's such self-destructive behavior. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but I would, I would just try putting up a big piece of cardboard or something to block the that that view so now a lot of us put like the outlines of other birds or even try to do raptor outlines on you know on our glass does that help at all um i think that like anything else those uh birds get um used to that um they they can identify um you know after a little while that that's not an actual living thing or a threat to them particularly like a backyard bird like a nuthatch that spends most of its life in a very you know, relatively small area. So um, they're going to view that and they're going to figure out at some point that that's not a threat to them. And so it, it loses its effectiveness that, you know, that way. So. All right. That's not what I was hoping to hear. So thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot for that. So <laughs> before we run out of time this hour, I, I've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, seeing birds outside an incredibly inclement weather. It makes a lot of us worry. We experience some empathy watching these little birds all puffed up. Uh, But Tyler, mostly they're okay. What are the adaptations that make it possible for birds to survive and even thrive during the winter months? Birds are definitely okay, uh, (laughs) probably more so than than we are in, in 
in the outdoors in the winter. Oh, one hundred percent. And I think one of the the perhaps most obvi- obvious ab- adaptations is just the amazing ability of feathers to maintain a bird's body temperature. The I mean, feathers are just a, amazing insulators, and and there are many great examples of of their ability and and a golden crown kinglet i think is one example that always comes to mind where you know they're spending the winter in latitudes north north of us where it's much colder uh, you know dipping down into the 20 to 30 degrees below zero and yet their feathers are still able to insulate them to the point that they can maintain a body temperature of above 100 degrees fahrenheit wow so you're talking about a 140 degree difference between their body temperature and the ambient temperature. And so, it, I mean, feathers are, are just really, really amazing. Uh, but there are a number of other adaptations. Uh, one that we, we talk about a lot with, with birds that uh, spend time on the ice, like waterfowl and gulls, is, is something called countercurrent heat exchange. And that is uh, basically the, the blood vessels in those birds' feet are clustered very tightly together. So as the blood, the warm blood is pumping from the core of the body out to the tip of that appendage or the tip of the foot, and the cold blood, which has come in contact with the cold surface or the ice, is going back to the core of the body, the fact that those blood vessels are clustered close together, there's heat exchange occurring as the blood is is kind of passing one another. So you can almost think about it as like, you know, if you, if I, I don't, don't try this at home, but if you were to exchange something with a passing car as you're, you know, you're encountering each other on the, on the highway, that might be a, an example, maybe not a great one, but like <laughs> I said, don't try this at home. Absolutely uh, not. But, but, uh, but that's a really, a, a, a kind of a unique and, and neat adaptation of, of birds that, that spend a lot of time on the ice. There are other uh, really fun behavioral adaptations. One of my favorite is snow bur- snow burrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were, if we have uh, some young listeners or, or perhaps um, some some not so young listeners that can remember their days playing outdoors in the snow as, as kids, if you were ever built a, a snow cave or, or a tunnel in the snow, you may have noticed that it's it's a bit warmer in there when you crawl inside and, and birds are very aware of that as well and will will burrow in the snow. Things like grouse um, in in um uh, areas north of us. Some of those birds I mentioned earlier that come down here and spend the winter, like Lapland longspurs and snow buntings, will snow burrow occasionally um, just to get out of the the wind and, and cold temperatures and, and try to find a warmer place to, to spend the day or night. All right. They're, they're fine. <laughs> they're doing fine <laughs> they out there for the most fine. part. Are there, are there events, winter events, though, that can put birds at risk? I mean, obviously, they don't all make it through the winter, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it's, it's somewhat random, but it, Todd mentioned earlier, there are times where um, that, that can get pretty challenging for birds, particularly if we have some, some you know, nasty snowstorms or things like that that make it more difficult for them to find the resources they need, like like food and water. Uh, that that can be pretty stressful and, and challenging for them, and and an, another time that that can often be challenging for birds is is in late winter and early spring, where we're starting to experience those really drastic, um, you know, fluctuations where it it might warm up and then and then all of a sudden it cools down and we get snow, and 
And that can cause uh, some of our more short distance migratory birds that might be just migratory a bit further south, but not too far. They feel those weather changes and then will start to move north. And then they, they kind of get caught mm-hmm. basically um, when we, when the, when the, the temperatures change drastically or drop drastically and, and they're, they're kind of left hanging without, uh, without food for a bit. So, so there are challenging times for birds, no doubt, but for the most part, they're pretty hardy and, and resilient critters. Let's go back to the phones. Dennis is on the line in Polk City. Hi, Dennis. Hi. Um, just talking about uh, birds in winter, um, I live up here by Saderville, and there are still pelicans hmm. hanging around Saderville Lake fishing because the water's so low, and I think they have really good fishing right now. So I'll just let you comment. I don't know if I've ever seen them this late. All right. Thanks for the call, Dennis. What do you guys think? I I, I think I have seen pelicans this late. <laughs> yeah. And if there's open water, we will see pelicans that will uh, that will hang around, um, you know, Sailorville and some of our other reservoirs in the state, particularly uh, down below where the water is, is um, still moving all winter long. Uh, we will tend to see some pelicans hanging around and, and fishing, um, you know, fisher always going to be there as long as the water's open uh, for the most part. And so those pelicans will have a, a ready food source for sure. Let's uh, also go to Craig on the line in Denver, Denver, Iowa. Hi, Craig. Hi, Charity. Uh, thank you, Todd, for sponsoring this and for and Tyler. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm making an observation that Todd may want to respond to, and that is these people that are somewhat shut in or in their homes and do not care to go out away from their home birding, there's such an opportunity to go on computers with the webcams mm-hmm. and pick up uh, locations where they can see a camera that's filming a particular bird or nest or a waterfall or someplace like that. And Prairie Rapids Audubon, our local society, uh, has a link on their website where people can access that very easily. And I'll just hang up and listen to your comments. Bye. Yeah, Craig, thanks a lot. And I'm somebody who loves to go outside, and I still love the the bird cams as well. But I I can imagine, Todd, that those are a real lifeline for some people. We uh, yeah, absolutely. If you can't uh, if you can't get out, and if you don't have a feeder that you can keep filled right outside your window, so some of those birds will come and visit. Um, those webcams are really a great thing. At our store, we have uh, one of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's uh, webcams that we play all the time on on a large screen TV. And uh, this time of the year, we're usually um, uh, it's loca- located in Ithaca, the the feeder cam that we watch. And so you see all the different birds coming. And it, at nighttime, it's kind of cool because they keep it running, and you'll see uh, flying squirrels come to the feeders and things like that, which is which is kind of a, a neat bonus. Uh, and then in the spring, we'll um, we'll transition and we'll we'll usually have the Decoro Eagle Cam on because people get so excited about about that, and you know. Decora was kind of on the front end of that kind of technology of putting webcams in, in, in um, spaces where people could see things that they hadn't been ever been able yeah. to see before, you know. So um, they are. It's, it's a lifeline for people, and they just bring joy to, you know, so many people, and it just, you know, lifts your spirit. So um, Cornell has a number of different webcams you can go to and, and, and watch birds from hummingbirds to 
California condors to barred owls to... <laughs> well, and I think a neat thing about the Cornell site is that they also have um, tropical yeah, feeder right. cams Panama. as well. So in the dead of winter, if you're wishing to feel a bit warmer, <laughs> yeah. you can pull up the Panama fruit feeders and, and you know see the luscious green vegetation and some really <laughs> colorful birds uh, that we don't see in Iowa come, come to those feeders. So it's really neat. I really appreciate Craig. Yeah. Uh, mentioning that. Yeah. So during the winter months, uh, we've talked about how, you know, it can be a wonderful time to watch birds. And it's even a good time to see birds in a, a different way because, of course, the, the leaves are off the trees. The snow, if we get any, provides a, a wonderful backdrop that kind of increases contrast. So it can be an easier time to see birds in some ways. And it's also a great time to get involved in some citizen science. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Christmas bird count, Tyler. So the Christmas bird count is a really neat uh, citizen science opportunity. It's actually the longest running citizen science program in North America. It started in uh, 1901. So we're coming into the 123rd year of the Christmas bird count program. And it actually has kind of an interesting history. Uh, it it was started um, in 1901 because um Hunters had this this idea that they would try to enter a competition to to see which group of hunters could harvest the most feathered and furred critters. And an ornithologist by the name of Frank Chapman, who was one of the founding members of the uh, Audubon Society, um, thought perhaps maybe we could try to count these birds rather than than harvest them. And that's that's what. Uh, kind of sparked the the Christmas bird count program as as we know it today. There are uh, a number of Christmas bird count opportunities across the state of Iowa and in other states as well. Um, and if if folks are interested in participating in that program, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can be part of a field party, uh, someone that actually goes out and and covers a specific area within the Christmas bird count uh, circle. All of these uh, counts happen in a in a circle. Um, or you can be a feeder watcher, which is tends to be a a, a preferred way of participating in the program. <laughs> uh, well, as no, as no. we've all talked about before, it, it can be done with a cup of coffee in the in the warmth and comfort of of your own home. Right. You can even but wear a bathrobe. Right? You can even wear a bathrobe. Ab- absolutely, but it, it is a really important contribution to uh, this this program. And there's been a number of studies. Um, that have been published using data from the Christmas bird count program. It's really, really valuable information to have such a long standing um, data source. Right. Well, and for people who participate year after year, people who are dedicated backyard bird feeders and backyard bird watchers, I can imagine that that also gives them really some unique insight onto, you know, how the populations are changing right around them. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it, it can be really fun to to kind of track your observations through time, even just in your own backyard and, you know, see who's showing up when and and how long they're sticking around. It, it's it's really neat to, to watch those changes through time. You also have uh, some events planned this winter for the Young Birders of Iowa. Tell me about those. We do. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Charity. Uh, so we have a couple of virtual events planned that are that are getting posted to our website uh, somewhat as we speak here. Um, to talk about some of the things that we've talked about today, dive into them in a bit more detail. So uh, we have a virtual event planned to talk about bird eruptions. So those, those movements that we discussed earlier, and then another virtual event planned to talk 
about how birds adapt to winter. Um, and so if, if folks are interested, um, you don't have to be a, a young birder, so to speak. You can be young at heart. You're welcome to, to tune into those virtual events. So is there, do you have a favorite way? We've only got about a minute left. So I'm curious for, for both of you, um, for people who are feeling hearty and, and ready to get some fresh air and get bundled up and get outside, do you have a favorite way to watch birds in the winter? And Todd, I'll let you go first. Oh, I actually, um, I, I'm one of those people that actually likes to get in my car and drive out on gravel roads and things like that so that I can see some of those birds that I don't typically get to see, like the Lapland longspurs and, and horn larks and things like that, snow buntings, maybe the chance of seeing a, a snowy owl. So I, I, I like to be kind of mobile that way. Nice. All right. Tyler? Oh, gosh, it's hard for me to select just one charity. I, you know, one I I think I, I really enjoy, we talked about this the last time um, that that we the three of us chatted and, and my one of my favorite birds is the trumpeter swan and they are really easy to see in winter time so i would recommend finding a place where there's some open water where waterfowl are congregating you can stand in one spot and just just look at trumpeter swans and canada geese and, and all of the birds that are out there that's really fun nice tyler harms thank you so much Thank you, Charity. Tyler Harms, Executive Director of Young Birders of Iowa and a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff. And Todd Burris, thank you. Thank you, Charity. We appreciate it. Todd Burris, co-owner of Wild Birds Unlimited in Ames. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.